So the first time I, I felt the real impact of it was I was working at this newspaper in New Jersey, and this was when I was first being diagnosed with some of these illnesses, and I was hospitalized for a week uh, to be diagnosed. And I realized that I was in really bad pain, like all the time, and I wasn't, I needed time away from work because it was just too painful to be at desk and driving. And I took a few months of leave of absence, but then it was lasted longer than I thought it would. And I got a call one day from uh, my editor saying that basically like you have to make a commitment to coming back by March 1st or you're not going to have a job. Hello there. I'm Yonka Kamara. Welcome to Kume Turning Point Diaries, where we share stories of critical moments in our personal and professional lives. Today, I'm talking to my colleague and good friend, David Coppell. David is the Associate Director of Communications at the New School in New York City, a former longtime freelance journalist for the New York Times, and is writing his first novel called Left Back City. As he soared towards the success of his chosen career, he began to suffer from fibromyalgia. David suffered his painful, debilitating condition in private for many years, and for the first time ever, he is speaking about it right here on Kume. Welcome, David. <laughs> Thank you, Yelka. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm, I'm really excited to yes. be doing this as you begin this new endeavor for yourself. It's yeah. really exciting. Well, thank you. And I'm so glad that you agreed to come on the show and share, share your story. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do at the new school and how you became a, a content creator, essentially. So at the New School, uh, my title, as you said, is the Associate Director of Communications. And that's mainly, uh, I mean, it's responsible for external communications, which is bringing publicity uh, to the New School media to cover different events and to cover different research and, and things that professors, students, and alumni are working on. And then also internal communications mm. for the people working there. I am uh, the editor of the New School News uh, blog on, on the website, so I write a lot of the stories that you see on that and about, uh, about students and faculty and, you know, all the interesting things going on at the university. So it's, it's, it's fun. It's, a good, yeah. it's something I like doing a lot. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and you've been there for how long now? Almost a year and a half. Yeah. I started in October 2018. Okay. Cool. I know that, you know, um, journalism wasn't like your first career, um, but how did you how did you finally decide to pursue? But it was a passion, a long time passion. It of was yours. it was a passion my whole life. I, I the first day of high school, I walked into the library and got a book that mm. said your career in journalism. And my aunt was a longtime uh, secretary. Uh, which they call them at that time, for the drama critic of the New York Times going from many decades. And she used to take me up to the New York Times when I was a kid, and it was like, you know, in Times Square. And it was the most exciting thing in the world for me. And so I knew, I knew pretty young that that's what I wanted to do and what I wanted to pursue. But uh, it actually uh, took me a little while to actually pursue it. I, I, when I got out of college, I... Uh, I tried to get some journalism jobs and, and I couldn't find any. And, and then I decided I would go to graduate school, mm. uh, which I was also a psychology major when I was, was a student. And I thought that would be uh, an easy, so, somewhat easier path for me, just like 
more like it would be school. I could be in school another five years, and then I would go on to a more set career rather than journalism, which was a very competitive and difficult career. But I realized after about two years that this was a mistake for me. It's not what I wanted to do. And I uh, switched, switched lanes and decided to go back and, and become a journalist yeah. after that. Yeah. And how did your family react <laughs> to um, My family was not all that supportive. Uh, I think, you know, if I had started and gotten a job at the New York Times right away, that might have been different, but mm. it was a struggle. I, you know, I actually, um, you know, I talked to every person I had known in my life and I networked with a million people, but it's still, I went door to door on the East Coast practically to every mm. publication in Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, and, and I got a lot of, you know, people saying, well, you don't have the experience, yeah, but, but they're not willing right? to give you the yeah, opportunity. Right. So it took about a year till I finally got uh, this small newspaper in Connecticut hmm. to give me an opportunity. And I started writing for them and getting my bylines, which are, you know, your name uh, next to your stories. And that's how it basically started. But it, it then took me about another year to get a job, a staff job at a place for the first time, which was at a, a Brooklyn uh, weekly in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. And and that was really then, you know, that was my start in so, my career. And know. what were you covering for them? Oh, everything like politics, education. It was, it was a, it was a great job in some ways. I got, I learned so much. I learned about the city and politics and Brooklyn and education. I was covering crime, uh, but it was a, it was a, crazily bad paying like mm-hmm. I once figured out that we were making 10 cents an hour I think wow. we were there was no we were considered full-time freelancers yeah so they got around I don't think they could do that anymore but mm-hmm. it, at that time in the in the early 90s they were able to classify as as that so we were working 12 hours a day getting paid very very little wow. working hard but learning I mean it was a great I wouldn't trade it because I mm-hmm. learned everything and I got to meet a lot of people um, a lot of my friends still are my yeah. friends from there. I, I moved to Brooklyn after that and lived there for many years. So it, it was a that was a big turning point for me because it was my first job. It also, you know, was a big part of my life in, in every possible way. Yeah. yeah. Is this paper still in existence? Yeah, they were they were bought by uh, uh, by News Corporation, Rupert Murdoch's company, oh, okay. a while back. So and then they were combined with another weekly. So they they yeah they yeah. still exist. They've been around for a long time. Yeah. Um, worst boss I ever had at this place, <laughs> and still, yeah. like more than twenty years later, he's still like he was he was a tyrant, and yeah, it was. But but everyone banded together, and mm. we were like yeah, it was a it was a great group of people. That's like, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And after that, so how long did you work for that paper? About two years, two I think. Years. And okay. then I worked for a New Jersey newspaper that was bigger um, for a few years as well. And uh, did some freelancing for other places and did some television work at CNBC and other places. And then um, I got what I thought was a really big break at the time was uh, I, I was in touch with someone at the New York Times for a few years. And then they gave me this opportunity to be a stringer for mm. the metropolitan section, which is basically not a staff person, but somebody who uh, worked as a, on a freelance basis. And, and I worked for them pretty much full time doing that for four years yeah. as a, you know, someone covering murders, fires, uh, so everything, <laughs> everything. And that was a huge break for me um, because it was the times, even though at that time they weren't giving bylines to to the stringers, it uh, it exposed me to a lot. I met so many people and 
Because of that, I was offered a television job uh, on Long Island, public television for a few years. So it, it, it uh, sparked like pretty much everything late after that in my career yeah. came from, from that. And, and also, I just felt like I was working for the New York Times. So yeah. it was like this, this dream that I had as a, as a kid was, was coming, coming true. And when I saw my first byline in the Times, I was like so emotional. Wow. It was like the best, one of the best moments of my life. I still and how did your family react to that? Um, some of them were, some of them were, were, were happy about it. Some of them like, you know, I, my, my dad, uh, I think I was, you know, seeking his approval a lot Mm -hmm. and I never felt, uh, I was getting it very much. So it was always, if I had a story, it was like, why wasn't a longer story? Mm -hmm, Why wasn't a better section? You know, my television series that I was on, I would say, you have to watch it. And he'd be like, oh, I'm going here today. It was always, so I, I never felt that, that sense of, of, of pride about it. And then he died a few years later. And when I was going through his possessions, I found in his draw, I found the first story I'd ever written for this Greenwich paper, which wow. was, and, and so then it seemed like, yes, he, there was pride, but for whatever reason, he didn't express, he couldn't your... express it or I don't know. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't have time to psychoanalyze <laughs> him right now, but uh, yeah. So, so that felt good. It was yeah. sort of, a, you know, uh, there was some closure or I guess something that made me feel like oh yeah he was he was paying attention to some extent so you were writing mm-hmm. um and at that time you were only writing for the New York Times or I, I started out writing for the New York Times I was I was then a few years later I started writing for the Times for New York Magazine for Newsweek Fortune a lot of very big publications and Enter- yeah. I was doing Entertainment Weekly a lot of yeah, it was just like I, it started coming together for me like everywhere. Just, yeah. you know, it was years of work that finally felt like it was it was made sense. The struggle felt yeah. felt like I was finally breaking through. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're breaking through. Yeah. Feeling good. Well, and then relatively. Yeah. Relatively. <laughs> so tell us what was happening. So so during these years, even going back to be, before I worked in Brooklyn, or even, you know, early, like, you know, I was in my late. 20s and I started uh, having chronic pain. Hmm. Um, I had a small injury when I was working out w- one day and and uh, but but the pain started wasn't going away. It wasn't healing like it would have before. So for a couple of years I was going to doctors and trying to figure out what it was and, hmm. and no one really knew why I was having this. And then they started, I started getting diagnosed with a couple of different things. They thought, first they thought it was something like MS mm. or lupus, and they did tests to prove that it wasn't that, but they diagnosed me with fibromyalgia, okay. which is a muscle and, and tendon, you know, pain uh, that at the time was not being diagnosed very often. And, and, and with men, very rarely, mm. it was actually being diagnosed with women mostly. So it was something that I was diagnosed with, but didn't want to talk about to anybody. Um, I had spinal stenosis, which was a narrowing of my spinal oh. canal. I had spondylosis, which I can't even define, <laughs> uh, uh, herniated discs. I had, I had pretty much everything. So yeah. I was, so during those years, I mean, I was coping with it for the most part and, um, you know, it would, it would wax and wane kind of thing. Like mm. it would be, get, be okay at times, tolerable. And then other times not. Um, but Later on, you know, fast forward like to around 2010, I, I was starting to get pain and I had surgery for the first time. And it was a very extreme surgery, um, a laminectomy infusion mm. of my spine because they told me that I was going to have neurological uh, problems if I didn't do it. So I, I, I did do it. 
Um, and it turned out not to be a great decision, I think, because it, there was like post-surgical pain that oh. started about a year later. And then I had four years uh, where I was in excruciating pain wow. all the time. And uh, very difficult to work. I was still working, but very hard to work. Um, there was a changing economy with, with journalism at that time also. Um, the, the pay scale was going down for people uh, because of the a lot of online publications were not paying reporters anything, mm-hmm. so other places were lowering their, their rates. So I was in a, not in a, I was in a bad place uh, for a few years. I was not sure if I was ever going to work again. Um, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen in terms of, uh, you know, anything, whether yeah. I was going to be able to be in an office again or, or whatever. And uh, I found a physical therapist who understood chronic pain, pain and was yeah. able to work with me and took a few years, but um, was able to get on a road to, to recovery and to feeling better. Yeah. Um, and during this process, did people know, like, did your, did your supervisor uh, or whoever you were reporting sometimes to? Sometimes when I was working, I, I, people knew, but sometimes, I mean, I, they knew when I had surgery and I was, mm. you know, if I was working somewhere that I was out, but I, I was very, I was, you know, I was being given pain medication, um, but I kept it very, um, I, I didn't, talk about the extent because I was really concerned that I wouldn't be hired in places yeah. or that it just wouldn't, I, I wasn't comfortable talking about it with people. I mean, my wife knew about it, obviously, and some of my close friends and family, but even some of those people didn't know, I think, the extent and that, you know, that I was really on the verge of, I was thinking about going on disability yeah. and, and yeah, so. So, yeah. yeah. And, um, but how did you accommodate your pain at work? I, th- I think I just, you know, tried to, uh, you know, I would start bringing like pillows into the office. I would start doing things that would, would make me feel more comfortable. And then, then I was also working from home much more. Yeah, okay. um, so that was, that was a, a big way of doing it, that I wasn't in offices that much because I really couldn't be. Uh, so I was turning down certain things where I would be in an office and I couldn't at that time really hold a full-time job, I yeah. think, even if I wanted to. Yeah. yeah. And what, so where are you now in terms of like um, your, I don't even want to say illness, but in terms of like your, the pain? So it's much, it's much better. I, I, with this physical therapist, we were able to work on an exercise program and, and other principles of, of how chronic pain is being dealt with by, you know, people on the cutting edge of this field. And, and for whatever reason, it connected with me and I was able to go back to the gym. And, and it took, a, like I said, a few years, but I started to feel better. I had um, an offer from a, a colleague that I used to work with to go to CUNY to mm-hmm. work at Lehman College in, in a similar role to what I was doing at the, at, uh, the new school. And I took it. I thought mm. it would be temporary and I liked it and they liked me and they mm. they kept me there and I, I was hired and for, worked there for four years. And so, um, yeah, things got better. How did this chronic illness impact your work and social life? So the first time I, I felt the real impact of it was I was working at this newspaper in New Jersey and this was when I was first being diagnosed with some of these illnesses and I was hospitalized for a week uh, to be diagnosed. And I realized that I was in really bad pain like all the time. And I wasn't, I needed time away from work because it was just too painful to be at desk and driving. Mm. And I 
took a few months of leave of absence, but then it, it was lasted longer than mm-hmm. I thought it would. And I got a call one day from uh, my editor saying that basically, like, you have to make a commitment to coming back by March 1st or you're not going to have a job. Yeah. And so... I thought I was going to push to try to do that, but I realized at that time I was in my condition wasn't uh, wasn't really ready to go back to work, and so I, I started to know that that was going to be you know again I don't know if if now people could do that mm. if you have an illness if they have to hold your job or whatever, but at that point they just were like you know basically if you don't come back by this date you, you're not going to have a job, and that's that's what happened. Yeah. I, I wasn't able to so that was the first thing. But then years later, when I was going through this this pain after my surgery, I was basically, I, I just didn't think I was going to, you know, work again. And I was trying all kinds of things. I couldn't type, uh, really. So I was getting voice-activated uh, software to talk my stories out, which I'm, I'm used to, like, typing everything mm. and thinking that way. So it was really hard adjustment. Or I would hire people to transcribe for me. I was doing all kinds of things to really just keep working as long as I can, but I felt I was losing ground. I yeah. was, and, and that it was, you know, the, the accommodations weren't really working at that time. So, yeah. yeah. And, and you weren't telling anybody that you were really, not really I to mean, the level to the no, extent that you no, were. No, I mean, like my wife knew, and again, some friends and, and maybe my, my mom, but yeah, I, I just played it down because yeah. I don't know if it was just a, a thing of being embarrassed of, of going through this where people I didn't think would understand. Or, you know, there were people earlier on when I had back pain that's like, oh, it's all in your head. Or, you know, there was a lot of, not a lot of understanding mm-hmm. of, of what was going on, even by the doctors. I had, you know, some doctors who would say, oh, just rest over the weekend, you'll be fine. There's not, you know, it, it was just a lack of, of good, uh, I think, I don't know, emotional IQ in terms mm. of just dealing with people who have this this type of thing at that time. Um, so, yeah, so that so I wanted to keep it more of a secret. And, yeah, it, it, it did affect me socially because I'm, I'm a pretty social person. And I, you know, there were times when things were so bad, I just did not want to go out yeah. with friends or, or go to a dinner party or party or, yeah. So I, I a lot of things that I normally would have done, I, I started to, to not, stay away yeah. from just because... Yeah. Yeah. And do you feel that now you you are more open in sharing with people or do you feel um, like you're you advocate for yourself more in a work setting? In terms I, of I don't I don't feel like I'm as this is about as open as I've <laughs> I've ever been outside of my immediate circle. So, yeah. Well, yeah. thank you. <laughs> so, I mean, yes, there are some people that know I have back pain, but I don't think there's anyone in our mm. office that knows the extent if they listen to this, they will, but yeah. the extent of what I've been through or what I have. So I don't, I, I think I can be a much better advocate for myself and for other people than I have been. But I think I've always been concerned of perception of what other people would think about it and, and whether it would for, you know, prevent me from, you know, getting, I, I thought about writing about it hmm. as a journalist. I thought that would be a perfect thing to do to yeah. be an advocate as a writer and to, for chronic pain. But again, I, my courage on it was, was not, you know, was not as, I guess, as strong as it should have been because I just felt, well, if I do this, maybe then, well, will they want to hire me? Will they want to, you know, will they think this is not a person who can do the job? So, yeah. yeah. Was there a particular, 
you know, when you agreed to um, talk to me mm-hmm. uh, and be on this podcast, was there a particular thing that had happened that made you like, okay, well, I'm ready now to to uh, share and to be open? And I think a couple of things. I think I've been getting ready. I've been. It's been something I've thought about for a few years. I think maybe because I am doing better uh, and I feel more confident about my future. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when you're in the middle of something like that, it's I don't know it's it's really hard to advocate for yourself. But feeling more confident about being able to cope with it and and deal with it, and I think it just it, it was the right opportunity yeah. when we talked. I think it was just you know I thought that you would be a good person oh. to talk to <laughs> and understanding and compassionate and you know that kind of thing. Yeah. So. Um, I was going to ask you. How can, you know, workplaces be better about, you know, I think there's so much discussion about diversity, inclusion, equity, but sometimes we don't really take into consideration of like pain, you know, and especially invisible pain, right? So if you don't see somebody with a cane, if you don't see, you know, you don't think that you need to accommodate them. And especially if the person then don't, is not empowered to share and, um, what they're experiencing. And even if they do share, people don't, they think that they're over-exaggerating, right? So, yeah. but how, you know, are there any ways in your, in your, in your I think opinion? I think it has to be, yeah, it has to come from both sides. I think people have to be more willing to share mm-hmm. that they have something. Because like you, you, it was a good point that you said about invisible pain. Nobody, you know, looking at me over the years would be like, oh, you know, and that's part of the problem. You say, you know, I have a, b- a back pain and it's like, oh, so does yeah. lots of people. So I think it's it's being honest, but also being having an organization that's going to be, you know, that you're not going to be concerned is going to is, is that is going to accommodate. You yeah. And, and that they there has to be sort of a, a, a trust on both sides that mm. the organization will be more willing to to talk to people about something like this. And, and then people like me have to be more willing to ask for accommodation if, yeah. they, if they need it, you yeah. know, and not be concerned that it's going to jeopardize their job or, or their career. Yeah. I think it's so wonderful that more and more um, jobs and just places are open to people working from home, you know, um, yes. so that people can... Um, make themselves more comfortable, you know, and because sometimes being in an office is not the most comfortable place to work. It doesn't mean, you know, you could be more productive being home. I would love to just hear your thoughts on um, regarding advocacy and as well as, you know, how can employers um, really deepen their commitment to inclusion, right, when it comes to accommodating um, someone like yourself who's dealing with a chronic pain, right? And then someone like yourself who also has to advocate for themselves. You know, do you think that would it have been better if you had somebody advocate on your behalf or, you know, given that you were so, um, you wanted, you were more private about it, right? And you didn't feel empowered enough to share. Do you think if somebody was there, if there was some kind of like entity um, that could speak on your behalf? Sure, I think if you feel that there's a, I don't know if it would be through HR or mm. through some other, uh, some other way at at a, at a company to be able to talk to those people and maybe have a mutual conversation, with, you know, with them as as mediators or with them as advocates that could I think work for some people. Yeah. I think ideally it would be great if you could go directly to your boss or to your to people and be able to talk about it, but I don't know that that's always 
possible for yeah. a lot of people. And so I, I do think that having some type of entity or person mm. who's able to advocate for disabled people or for people with issues like that. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a great idea. I think yeah. I, I, I'm not sure there might there may well be places that have that. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I know that in uh, the new school, they usually have like these staff um, workshop retreats, you know, and they have sometimes like these wellness. But some somehow, you know, to my knowledge, there haven't been anything talking about really, talking openly about pain. Right. And not, what that the I, needs, not that I know. Of. Right. And, and like I, that I would, would be the perfect space. Yeah. Right. To yeah. do that. Because sometimes it just takes one person to to have the courage to say this is I'm dealing with this. And I'm pretty sure other people are probably dealing with it. You know, I think men have a much harder time hmm. just culturally and, and gender wise. I think men have I've never been, you know, maybe it's changing now to mm-hmm. to. You're supposed to, I think, be stoic with pain. You're supposed to be able to, you know, work through it, play through it. So I think that has been an issue for me, um, that that it was something that, you know, when I was especially diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which, you know, is a very prim- primarily diagnosed for women, mm. um, I felt, well, if this is something that mostly women are, then, you know, it's going to be strange as a man to talk about that I have it. But yeah. in some ways, there may be men who are just not, getting diagnosed or not being open to talking about some of the symptoms that they have. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And um, do doctors give you any tips on that, on how you can talk about it? Well, it's funny because when I first had these, you know, but this is many years ago, the doctors didn't really know very much mm. about a lot of this. And so I remember when I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, for example, I asked my doctor, like, can you give me patients who have made it to the other side, who've mm. done well with it? And he was like, yes, yes, I'll do that. And I asked him two or three times and never followed through. through. And I don't know if it was because maybe there was just nobody that he could point to as an example. Mm. And now the physical therapist uh, that helped me points to me as an example uh, (laughs) to people. He's used me as a as a. lab experiment where, where where interns come into the thing where he says look you know David yeah. made it through and went through this whole thing and so yeah so that I mean I think that was even the start of me thinking well maybe I, I should be more of an advocate and more public about this because yeah. it, it is something that I think is really hard for people to talk about yeah and um, I also wanted to just hear from you like what it felt like the first time you were actually able to work out um because you weren't able to do that for many years uh, it was amazing because I used to work out very frequently and swam and did a whole lot of things so when I went back to the gym for the first time which was about maybe three just three years ago it was it was was very recent fairly recent and it was it was an amazing feeling because honestly I never thought I would even be able to like lift any weight again or do mm. anything I, I I had not been able to do it for many many years and I when I used to go back to try to do it every time I tried it it always generated more pain so the fact that I was able to go back it was it was also like just an amazing feeling yeah. and that I've been able to continue to do that for the last three and three and a half years it's yeah it's yeah. been it's been it's been great it's been great yeah that's wonderful really and, <laughs> and um you know, what would you say to anyone who's out there who's listening to this podcast and 
or hasn't made it to the other side, right? Um, and just dealing with this pain, what would be your mm. advice? To I would them? say not to not to give up hope because mm. I think I had given up hope at one point, and you never know where there's where there could be someone. It doesn't have to be one person, but maybe a couple of people. Or just keep trying. Don't don't give up. Just you know on yourself or or on you know what you're doing. I, it's it's very hard because I know people who are going through what I've gone through and have not made it. And they've tried dozens and dozens of, of ways to get better and they just have not. And yeah. they're not able to work and, and they, they're not able to, it really impacts every aspect of their life. But I'd still try, you know, I try to tell them and try to tell other people that you should just, you know, keep, don't, don't give up. And, and that is, you know, that it's, that's the worst thing. I think once you, if you lose hope and you give up, then, yeah, yeah, then it's really over for you. But I think if you keep trying, there's always a shot. There's a chance that even if, you know, I used to say, like, even if I can be 20% better mm. or 30% better, that's going to be amazing for me. That's going to be something. And and so I think even if you can get relief that's, you know, just even doesn't have to be 100% relief, yeah. but something, it's it's very significant. Yeah. Because Was there a particular thing that kept you going? Like, you're like, okay, I want to be able, if I could do this, then I know that I'm, I, I I'm think, better than, you know, I'm 20% better. Well, honestly, I think my marriage was, was um, really suffering. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was really wanted to try to get better to, to you know, to really keep the marriage going and yeah. to, and to, for it to, in some ways, for it to just be at a better level. And so, yeah, so I, I started to, I went to this person who did something called cranial sacral mm. uh, therapy, which is this kind of hand, like it's, it's a very non-traditional and, and I started getting some relief from that. And, yeah. and so I just tr- kept trying. And I just, I think with the physical therapist, I was someone recommended to me and it was just really lucky because wow. physical therapy had not been working for me, but it was just this person, you know, who it was the right connection the right time just I don't know yeah it, it worked and just probably understanding of you you know so because so much of I think healing comes from you know the connection we make with somebody you yeah know, and it, their understanding of us ex- yes exactly I, I tell this person that he saved my life and uh-huh. he's always like no no you did it and I just he is modest about it but I I really believe that I don't know if I hadn't met this person mm. um where 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 it would have gone I don't yeah. I don't know because I had tried dozens of people and dozens of methods uh, that weren't working. So yeah, and you do you still see this physical therapy? No, he uh, unfortunately he's no longer practicing physical therapy. I, I have I do go to someone else that he referred me to. Who's mm-hmm. also who's also really good. Yeah. Um, I don't, if he listens to it, I don't want to. I want to <laughs> give him a shout out also because yeah, yeah. he's he's great also. Yeah. Um, but he knows that this person was was someone that you know came along when I was yeah at like kind of the lowest level. So. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 I, I do think that there needs to be more discussion about this for workplace though, because it's, it's still like very, you know, very rarely discussed. Mm -hmm. And I think especially people with, with invisible disabilities or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so where are you? So, you know, full circle, right? Um, so you're feeling much better, mm-hmm. right? Um, you're still dealing with Yes, this, I'll always um, be dealing with it. You'll always be dealing yeah. with this mm-hmm. chronic. But it's something that's manageable. Would you say it's manageable yes. at this point? Yes, And um, And how do you feel like your your entire social life and just 
No, every, everything, I mean, when I started getting better in around 2014 or 2015, I, you know, I felt my life changing. And when it, when I got to the point where I was significantly better, I felt like every day for about two years, I was just in, in this state of gratitude. Yeah. I was just so, I had moved to this new apartment in Long mm-hmm. Island city. Um, neighbors. Got, gotten, <laughs> gotten neighbors. Yeah. I gotten this new job in CUNY. Um, I was, you know, I was really, I had never, I don't think I was ever someone who really was someone real. I was always kind of hardworking and hard on myself and I always wanted to do more and um, prove myself. But, but I went into a state of like gratitude, like Mm -hmm. every day I just felt like, wow, I'm working, I'm living here. I'm, I'm, you know, seeing friends, I'm doing all these things that I didn't know that I would be able to do again. Unfortunately, that state of gratitude did not last forever, but it was it was good, you yeah. know, for uh, for a couple of years because I really I still feel it, but it wasn't. I don't feel it. I, I don't practice it as much That's every day. Right. I think you know. Yeah. I think now now it's back to like oh, not back, but you know, I'm working hard. I'm writing a novel. I'm you know, it's like so. What can I do? You know, what can I do next? And I'm I'm a little bit back to some of my older workaholic or, <laughs> or tendencies, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I think it's 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 good to to sort of stop step back and and still be able to feel the gratitude yeah. and, and realize you know where where I've come from and to be able to come back to where I am. Yeah, I've personally felt like an immense transformation since I've implemented like a daily ritual of gratitude. Mm-hmm. I do the, a I journal. I do the, um, I have a journal called the five minute journal, and mm-hmm. um, one of the um, things you're supposed to write is identify three things that you're grateful for every every single morning right and it could be something that's already present in your life or things that you want to manifest and Mm -hmm. I you know I think it just sets the tone for your day and um sometimes we so focus on like things that are not right you know in our life that we we're not grateful for what could be what is great you know and what could be great so just shifting having that shift from like scarcity to more of abundance Mm -hmm. you know because I really believe that what we affirm and reaffirm to ourselves every single day is what we manifest and so gratitude is such is so important in how we feel you know do you do you come up with three different things every day or do you do oh you do and some of them some of them it's I repeat because it's something I really want to mm-hmm. manifest and mm-hmm. maybe um, I phrase it differently. Um, I have more clarity in what it is that I want because I, I think it's so important to be able to visualize the life you want, right? And so, so yeah, sometimes it's just being grateful for, you know, most times one of the things I'm grateful for is having an able body in mind, mm-hmm. right? And just... Mm-hmm. You know, that's something we all, a lot of people take for granted. Yeah, your health, right? right? Your that's, health. that's what they, uh, every, yeah. That's yeah. what they always said. Yeah, if you have your health, you have you it have, all. Yeah. So, and, I, and then I, you know, I learned that that was, that was true. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I say that, but I can phrase it in so many different ways, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, but yeah, I, I try to do that every single morning. I, sometimes I don't have time to, to write it down, but while I'm showering, I say it out loud. I, I try to make sure that I say it mm-hmm. or, um, because it's just so important to me. So and so I'm so grateful that I heard that you you did that, you know. Um, I think I, I need to get back to get doing back it to more. It. I do. Because I'll remind you in the office. I'll remind over me and be be, like, because, what are you gra- <laughs> grateful for today? Yeah, because, well, sometimes, yeah, it's easy to get lost in the in the, uh, you know, in the day to day 
struggle or mm-hmm. whatever you're dealing with and, and, and lose track of it. Yeah. And as you get further away from that period of real struggle, you, you, you know, I think the mind likes to forget, mm. you know, sometimes like, again, talking to you is the first time I've talked about a lot of these things in a long time, because, you know, a lot of them are not very enjoyable to remember yeah. some of that time. It's like, you want to be like, Oh yeah, yeah, that's in the rear view, but you know, but it's important, I think, to, to, to realize, especially if you've come from that and, and yeah. gone beyond it to, to, recognize that yeah well i'm grateful for you and i'm grateful for you You. to for sharing with us um your your story you know and and i know that will resonate with people i hope so uh, for sure i hope it's like the beginning for me of of being able to do things like this in terms of of talking about this or or maybe writing about it yeah and if you write about it let me know i'm happy to share it and Mm -hmm. you know whatever you want to do if you want to be come back on the show and you know um if you have any solutions or if you start an organization whatever come back and um we'll be happy to okay. to have you to talk so, about this next turning point yeah 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 well good <laughs> luck with advocacy. all yeah good luck yeah. with this for you i think yeah. it's gonna be go really well i can tell thank it's you like, <laughs> thank you theme music by exile dynamics Featuring more box. Sound engineering by Wheels Kids.